Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Sarah Eggy about her book, Women's Suffrage and Citizenship in the Midwest, 1870-1920. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on the New Books Network. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Sure. So I'm originally from South Dakota. I grew up in South Dakota. I went to uh, my undergrad graduate institution, North Dakota State University. Uh, And then I went to Iowa, uh, Iowa State University. So I like to say I'm a product of the Midwest. (laughs) (laughs) I'm someone who, uh, you know, grew up with cold winters and um, summers with not so much humidity. Um, And uh, I think in many ways that experience shaped my interests as a historian. Um, I was very much interested in the place, this region um, in which I had lived. I lived in a number of different states and just really had a lot of questions about why the communities that I had lived in were the way they were, um, why people uh, talked about things the way they talked about them. And so for me, that was a, a pretty important part of my upbringing that led me to think about, um, as I got more interested in history, uh, what I ultimately wanted to study. Was it a direct line between that interest and this book, or did you initially consider, or or did you initially approach other topics before you started to discuss, before you started to look at this one? Yeah, so I was generally interested in women's history uh, and really thought that I was going to end up doing something with one of the more famous women's rights activists, or that I would look um, at a particular element, maybe of the suffrage movement, but not necessarily in a particular region. Um, But what happened was uh, I had a, as a senior uh, uh, undergraduate at North Dakota State, I had an independent study, and I read all these books about women's suffrage and about women's rights activism, really kind of the late 19th and 20th century and I realized, um, I was talking to my professor, I said, well, where, where's the scholarship on rural women and on women in the Midwest? And she just said, well, there isn't really much. There's some, but there's not a whole lot. And so that really piqued my interest. Um, so here I am, a, I don't know, 22-year-old senior in college, and I've sort of, I, I, that was it. I, I thought, well, this is really what I want to do. I want to explore this. I want to say something and figure out um, what's going on with women's rights um, and then in particular women's suffrage in the Midwest. Um, and so for me, I just felt like there was a gaping hole there. Um, and I wanted to explore that. One of the things I took from reading your book is just how large that hole is. It seems like there is so much work to be done. And what you do in your book is you're talking about uh, women's uh, participation in civic affairs and the suffrage movement in South Dakota, Iowa, and Minnesota. And you focus in particular upon three counties, Clay County in Iowa, Lyon County in Minnesota, and Yankton County in South Dakota. I was wondering if you could explain perhaps why you chose those three counties. I was thinking about this. I saw you have in your book uh, uh, a map of each state with the counties all outlined and the fact that you you highlight where each county is. And I was struck by the, the, as I was reading it, how you chose this county and why not the neighboring counties or why not say, you, you know, maybe counties uh, closer to the, to the capitals or something like that. That's a great question. Um, there's a couple of reasons. So when I went to graduate school, I went to Iowa state, as I said, and uh, I knew I wanted to do something with women's suffrage, and I wanted to look at rural spaces. So that meant that um, while I could have looked at, at maybe the capital cities or counties where there was a larger town, uh, and let's you know be honest, this is relative to the Midwest and to these 
particular states, um, the population is not very dense. Um, I could have done that. But what I wanted to really understand was what it was like for rural dwelling individuals, really farm families um, or people whose lives were rooted in agriculture. So um, I wanted to do that. And then I sort of had a meeting, my advisor, um, Pam Riney Kerberg, she said, well, hey, you should talk to this retired uh, history professor. Her name is Dorothy Schweder, and she does a lot of work. She did a lot of work um, with Iowa history. You should just get her insights on what what she thinks you should do. So I I just went over. We had a lovely, uh, I think she had like cookies and tea, and we just sat in her living room. And I just remember she's like, well, if you want to talk about this, you really need to pick um, a county that will represent sort of this this sort of experience of um, rural local communities. Um, you also need to make sure you find counties that have great local archives and uh, repositories. And so that was really something I also keyed in right away. Um, but then she also made this point. She said, you also want to think about how do these three, In at that point, I decided I was going to do three states. So she said, if you choose a county in each state, how do they speak to each other? Um, and so she kind of made this point and I, and I developed it further that I wanted to choose counties that had similar settlement histories, um, similar economic outlooks, um, somewhat similar demographics, um, which I, is important um, for the argument that I make, especially around the idea of gender and ethnicity. Um, and then ultimately, then the the sort of different, the, the, the factor that's different um, was this idea of the political uh, climate, um, especially then as it related to this, um, how women's suffrage unfolded in each county. Um, one of the arguments I make is that especially in the Midwest and really across the nation, women's suffrage was experienced through local communities. Um, But in particular, in the Midwest, um, that's how women understood their activism was on behalf of their communities. So it was kind of this combination of of recognizing that I wanted, if I was going to make this argument and I wanted to understand how women came to their activisms, I needed to look at these local communities. So then I, again, went back and I made sure that these counties had great local archives, which they did. Um, Yankton County, Lyon County, and Clay County all have some sort of county historical societies. Some of them have even sort of small town um, public libraries or um, historical societies that have their own small collections. And those were vital. And so once I sort of surveyed and recognized that these places all had similar uh, histories, except for their interactions with women's suffrage, but then they also had these uh, collections. For me, that was sort of the way I figured it out. If you also will just, I'll just say that the geography, if in this sort of tri-state area of South Dakota, Southeast South Dakota, uh, Southwest Minnesota, and Northwest Iowa, um, they're all actually pretty close to each other, again, in a Midwestern relative sense. Uh, Midwesterners, we have no problem driving three or four hours to, to do something. <laughs> and so um, they're, rel- you know, they they have, if you if, if you are in Clay County, Iowa, and you talk about Marshall, Minnesota, which is the county seat of Lyon County, Minnesota, people are like, oh, yeah, we know where that is. We might even know someone there. So even though they're in these different areas, there's um, this sh- broader shared regional tri-state identity in particular in that place. Hmm. Uh, I'd like to go back to something you were talking about uh, a moment ago, which was this idea of the the, the context in terms of the societies in which these communities were located. Uh, could you take us uh, back to the late 19th century in the Midwest and describe what these communities were like, like who the populations were and what were some of the issues and norms for those times? Sure. Uh, so the first group of people who came in larger numbers, they came mostly after the Civil War. Certainly there were people, I, I, I should say, of course there were people living in this area for generations and generations and generations. Um, so it's really what we're talking about are white settlers who are coming. Um, and there were some before the Civil War, but they start to come more in larger numbers after the Civil War. And these are primarily Yankees. Um, I I borrow this. Other people have talked about Yankees in the Midwest, so I'm I'm using that label. Um, And these people are generally middle class. They're white, uh, Anglo-Saxon in particular. Uh, They're usually Protestant. 
they're educated and they're elite and they have a tie to the Northeast and really in particular New England. And so they come to the Midwest uh, again in large numbers after the Civil War with a particular goal Uh, In part what they and they say this is their own words. They want to basically institute civilization as they see it, but a particular vision of civilization, one that prizes community, civic engagement in particular. So they love volunteerism. They love public institutions. They have all of these fraternal societies that they recreate um, in the Midwest um, you know, the Masons and the Odd Fellows and all these different groups. Um, and they immediately begin in their minds building uh, this vision of, of civilization. Um, and a key component of that is that you should be civically engaged with your community. Um, and the other cool thing or interesting thing is that it's, it's gender inclusive, meaning that Yankee women are working alongside their husbands. Yes, in often in different ways, right? They're working um, more often for causes related to education. So they'll be um, pursuing public school building. They're going to be building libraries. Um, They're also working a lot. I talk a lot about this uh, in their churches. Um, But they're engaging in this um, public work of community building and settling And it gets public recognition um, and they build these reputations that are incredibly valuable once woman suffrage starts to unfold in this particular context. So when I talk about Midwestern political culture, um, I'm situating these Yankee women who will then become Midwestern suffragists, the, the leading activists. They come out of this particular moment of Midwestern settlement and the expectation of civic involvement. So they come first uh, in larger numbers, and they continue to move into the Midwest um, throughout the late 19th century. At the same time that immigrants, mainly from Europe, um, particularly from Northern Europe, are coming to the Midwest. Um, The largest numbers are coming predominantly from two groups, Germans and then Scandinavians, which I know are made up of Norwegians and Swedes and Finns and um, other groups. So they come to the Midwest again, in the late 19th century, and they're primarily seeking land um, to farm. Um, We have the uh, land grant, Moral Land Grant Act of 1862 that um, makes it somewhat easy uh, for them to acquire 160 acres of of land. They have to work it for five years, and then they, they basically get it. And so this is a huge lure for them to come to the Midwest. But as I talk about in the book, what it does is it it creates a particular characteristic of the settlement that starts to shape the um, political context and then ultimately women's suffrage. Um, these immigrants will settle together um, in enclaves. They will settle often um, with ethnic identi- uh, um, identities intact within these enclaves. And then there also there's religious identities as well. So, for example, Um, Norwegians are typically Lutheran. They will settle together in a small enclave, um, kind of out on the prairie. And what that does is that gives them a different sense of community than these Yankees. Uh, These immigrants uh, see themselves as part of this community development, but they're Their goal is, in many ways, to maintain their ethnic identities, their cultures. Um, So you have Norwegian Lutherans, you have lots of Germans, you have German Lutherans and German Catholics, um, you have lots of other groups, but these religious and ethnic, ethnically defined enclaves start to pop up across the Midwest. Um, My favorite analogy, it's like a patchwork quilt, where they're all sort of uh, it's not the pretty, you know, there's, the, yes, there's the grid system, but they're all within there, um, sort of haphazardly around. And they disrupt this Yankee notion of civic engagement um, in that, yes, they, they want to be civically engaged, but not on the, in the same ways that the Yankees would like them to be. And because of this enclave culture, they can maintain a lot of their ethnic traditions. Uh, so they're speaking their, their native tongues for a long time in the Midwest. They are um, raising um, their own food so that they can then produce um, a lot of their sort of cultural values. They're practicing um, holidays from their um, ethnic cultures that 
Americans are not celebrating. Um, and then for re- for them, really, it, rather than these sort of public institutions like school and library, for them, it's their church. Um, that is their um, sort of nexus, their hallmark of identity, and it reinforces both the religious and ethnic values that they seek to perpetuate in the Midwest. And so uh, Yankees and these European immigrants are living together. Um, they're often working together on various enterprises, often economic growth. That's a big part of this. They, they're settling and they're trying to develop the Midwest and create um, these sort of agricultural um agriculturally defined states um, that will benefit both the states, the region and the world and the nation. But they're doing so sort of within these various ethnic and religious um, um, communities. And so as you can imagine, there you could there's this tension um, that's infused in this settlement process. And it plays out then in the political landscape as well. Um, when you start to get at some of the interesting um, ways that uh, immigrants at this time are um, uh, are expecting to then engage uh, on this in the political landscape of the time. You have delineated some of the basic differences between the two groups. Were there any differences when it came to the gender norms of the time in terms of how they viewed uh, women and the role of women in their respective societies? Yes, um, there were. So as I mentioned, Yankees had more of a a gender inclusive vision uh, for their community engagement. Um, And again, they they certainly worked often on separate initiatives, women did, than men, Yankee men. Um, And so there is, it's not to say that it's gender equality. Um, I try to make that pretty clear, but it is more inclusive in that they can partner, work alongside Yankee men. For the immigrants, there is not that expectation for immigrant women in particular. Um, And it it depends on the particular immigrant group. Um, Norwegian women, um, we see that there's more inclination to include them. Um, There's often more, especially with women's suffrage, um, there's a little bit more willingness to support women's suffrage, um, not necessarily early on, but later in the early 20th century. Um, But often we see especially, for example, with um, German women, that expectation of, of uh, partnership and sort of more inclusive gender norms, that's not the case. So you do see, again, sort of a break um, between women um, and, in terms of if they're immigrant or if they're Yankee. And so that's something to note. The, above all, though, I will say um, that gender norms in the 19th century were still very much that women should be in the home, that women should um, be concerned mostly about childcare, um, about food preparation. Um, in this agricultural context, there's definitely a lot of uh, sliding in terms of how women are, they're working in barns, they're working in fields where, when they need to. So there's not necessarily like these, the rigidity that we would think of, but the expectation, the, I, the prescription is there that women should be um, sort of separate. Um, I do make this point though, that the, the idea of separate spheres, while it holds weight, it's not the reality for many of the, in particular, these rural women. Um, a lot of them, whether they're Yankees or they're immigrants, the work that they're doing, the engagement in particular in their communities, um, gives them access to the public sphere. It gives them um, more of a sense of belonging within um, these sort of um, more inclusive, again, sort of more equal, but not. it's not necessarily like true gender equality. And so, yeah, so it's, it's, yes, there's these predominant ideas, but it gets complicated when you actually look at what women are doing. And then there cer- certainly are differences between Yankee women and immigrant women. That's one of the things that you do in your book that I thought was especially interesting was you describe how women take the area of the public sphere that is open to them and in effect use that as sort of a foothold into a much larger role of activism later on. You describe how these traditional activities, things like, say, uh, community fundraisers, end up giving them a grounding that they then translate into broader social activism uh, even prior to the, the, the campaign for the suffrage. 
Yeah, that was actually one of my favorite chapters to write. Um, <laughs> it was so interesting because often, so there's in the historiography, there is this sense that the Midwest was really not favorable to women's suffrage, that most women were not interested in it, and that largely these campaigns were failures. While that's true, there, that a lot of the amendment campaigns, uh, the initial ones didn't have, they didn't see victory, there was support uh, that slowly developed over time for women's suffrage and the way that it developed and, and how these uh, women who will become suffragists frame their activism comes directly from their community involvement. It's quite subtle. I think other historians have overlooked it or not understood how vitally important it was uh, and how it counts as activism. So um, one of the things I did was to then uncover this. And so I looked at um, women in their community involvement, um, the activities that they did, and I found that they were they're all over the place. They're working in all of these different ways. Um, one of the groups that I talk a lot about are ladies aid societies. So these would have been women's groups associated with the church. Um, they could be mission societies, so they had different names, but in general, these ladies aid societies would fundraise for their churches. Um, and they would have bazaars or they would have socials, they would have picnics and they would raise money. They would have, it's, it's sort of like, it seems sort of quaint, right? I think people sort of think, well, that, yeah, that's women's work. And it is, but what's amazing is they raised huge sums of money and they use that money to, again, engage in the public sphere um, so in their churches, you know, they're going and they're buying expensive furnishings. Um, they are, they basically hold the the money. So if men want anything uh, done to the church or any changes that they need to make, they have to go to the w Ladies Aid Society. They have to go to the women and ask for it. And um, I looked at some of the meeting minutes for these Ladies Aid Societies and you can tell that it's really the women who are, are they're not necessarily the leaders of the church in terms of like, if you looked at the, you know, the elders or whatever, they're not listed, but they're the ones that are giving permission for whatever the church leaders want to happen. Um, and I have a number of examples of that in the book. Then, And I just think that it's, it's the collective effort of these women to control the finances through their own work that gives them this incredible power and it accumulates over time. It's tied to this point I made earlier about reputation. They get these great reputations in their churches that starts to, again, give, give people the sense that, well, women have this power, they have this authority and, and we respect them for it. And then it starts to get into these arguments about, well, then women with this authority and power and respectability, well then, yeah, they should have the right to vote. So I think that's really great. They do it in other ways too. Federated ladies societies, women's clubs. These are, this is incredibly popular. The women's Christian temperance union was very popular and important in the Midwest. And these groups, they do very similar things and they accrue over time, this incredible social capital that gives them this claim to the ballot. Yeah. I was thinking about that as I was reading that, uh, uh, chapter in your book, which is how it worked on both the practical and the uh, and the abstract level. On the practical level, they're getting the organizational skills. They're 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 learning how to fundraise. It's they're they're it's it's helping in a, in effect to give them the uh, the realistic groundwork for running campaigns like you see with uh, temperance and and, and and prohibition and then uh, suffrage. But it's also the and this is what I thought was especially illuminating that. Uh, that theoretical aspect they're, they're making the case for their role as citizens in a way that is uh, both acceptable in their in their communities but at the same time is then raises this question well then why is this barrier why why does this exist here if women can do, go up to this point why can't they just go beyond that point and become full citizens exactly yeah so well one of my favorite ways of, of sort of envisioning this. So there's a campaign in South Dakota in 1890 and the ladies aid society of the Methodist church in Yankton County is going to have their annual fall bazaar and they have it downtown. It's this huge community event. It's well attended. And this is totally normal. Everyone's like, yep, we know what's happening. You walk in, there's quilts on the wall. Um, there's handmade 
you know, there's tons of goods, there's food, there's an entire meal. And so this is totally normal. And that year, that fall, here comes Anna Howard Shaw, <laughs> you know, the, she's just, you know, well-known suffrage activist, uh, a member of the National American Women's Suffrage Association or NASA. And she gives a speech at the bazaar. And I just love this idea that for these women, they're making this subtle yet powerful argument that we do all this work for the community. It's totally recognized. You have no problem with it. And we're going to invite the suffragist and make this point that, again, we are citizens. We understand the responsibility of um, uplifting our communities, building our communities. And therefore, yeah, it makes no sense why we can't take it a step further and get the right to vote. And I just love that it sort of illustrates how these women, again, make this subtle yet powerful argument that they should have the right to vote. One of the other things you do in your book is you talk about the relationship between the uh, movement for prohibition, the WCTU, and suffrage. And it's one that other his, uh, historians and, and, and other authors have, have, have talked about in the past. But what uh, you do in your book is you situate it within the context of these three states and these three communities. And it helps to show how the lines on the suffrage movement came to be formed. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon that, the, the role that the women in these three communities played in the WCTU and these campaigns, and how that defined, uh, to a certain extent, how these uh, different communities you've described, the Yankee and the and the uh, German Scandinavian immigrant communities, came to view the role of women in these, uh, uh, you know, in in public uh, affairs. Sure. Yeah. So a lot of these Yankees are also members of the WCTU, um, the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And so temperance is by far the political issue of the Midwest. It's one of obviously the, the major ones in the United States and the 19th century. But for in particular in the Midwest, this is an, the animating question. Um, and I And I like to think that or I like to point out that it's not just um, about abstaining from alcohol and other behaviors that encourage vice, right, and that are corrupting, but it actually goes to this question that starts to, on you know, sort of pit um, native-born American Protestant these Yankees' vision of of who. Um, people should be and how they should act against this immigrant sort of um, resisting and, and wanting to perpetuate its ethnic values, that being um, sober is in fact a, an innate character uh, or an, an innate um, sign of your character that you are um, you understand the responsibility of government, that you are um, someone who can be counted as responsible, um, and, and that it really is not just about you know, these sort of what we think about when we, you know, we want to establish prohibition, but it's in fact um, deeper than that. And for the Midwest, it becomes, again, part of this, how do we understand Midwestern political culture? So for a lot of the Midwestern suffragists, um, these Yankees, they're not only suffragists, but they're also members of the WCTU. And they see their suffrage as coming out of, many of them come to suffrage, in fact, through the WCTU. Um, in Iowa, in South Dakota, and Minnesota, they have tons of overlap. In fact, the South Dakota, the first state association, the leaders are basically the, the one and the same. They're the members of the WCTU, the state organization. So they cannot be separated in some ways. Um, this becomes problematic when you start to have voters um, who are anti-prohibition who are making this case that, well, all women want to do is get the right to vote so that they can establish prohibition. It's hard to say that that's not wrong because so many of these women are saying that. Um, and they, it's very difficult for them to try to downplay that. It's one of the issues that starts to really agitate the leaders of NASA, Susan B. Anthony in particular, um, Carrie Chapman Cat also later, because they're trying to make women's suffrage a single issue, and they can't in the Midwest. It's just so difficult to do that, in part because so many of these women see themselves as suffragists because of their civic engagement and their community activism out of in, one, in, in many ways, the WCTU, Federated Women's Clubs, and others. So they can't separate 
they don't want to do that, don't want to make that argument that Anthony and Kat will want them to do. So it creates this big problem. But temperance is right alongside women's suffrage as um, a way of people in the 19th century, 20th century of trying to understand how do we think about all of these groups of people who are vying for political power? How do we draw the lines? How do we make it clear who should be participating and who should not be participating? And so it's a way of trying to, as they start to advocate and have these campaigns, of starting to um, make a clear argument about citizenship, who are good citizens and who are not. And as you expect, if you're thinking through all these different groups that we've been talking about, really it's Yankees, native-born, white women, they are good citizens. And these immigrants, and in particular Germans, are not. I was thinking about the flip side of that too, which is that you have these German immigrants uh, who can vote and who for whom they're seeing this idea of women gaining the right to vote as, well, they're going to use that to force their values down our throat. And so why should we support this? And, and so they're not thinking in terms of their women. They're thinking in terms of the Yankee women. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They don't want women to vote. A lot of them. Um, in part because of these cultural gender norms that they have. But also, yeah, they don't want these Yankee women who are, are saying, well, we are good citizens, we understand this, and we want the right to vote, and we have these ties to uh, the WCTU. They're, these German immigrants were like, well, obviously we're not going to support this. This is not in our interests. It does not align with our own values, so we're not going to support um, women getting the right to vote. And it starts to really drive a wedge over you know, the late 19th. And really, as you start to think about getting uh, approaching World War One, it becomes a really big issue. Um, but it, 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 it also complicates a lot of the historiography. Um, so much of the evidence, especially the evidence that comes from these national suffrage leaders like Anthony and Kat and Shaw, they just, you know, they do not like the Midwest. They do not like uh, a lot of their campaigns, they did not go very well, at least the early ones in particular. And so they really, you have to read through, read between the lines, especially the the multi-volume history of women's suffrage that they produce as they're engaging in women's suffrage campaigns. It, they're not favorable or friendly when it comes to the Midwest, but it's pulling back the layers, you realize, well, it's because they have these prejudices and they have the sort of this insurmountable, as they understand it, sort of tangled mess of temperance and women's suffrage and immigrants and immigrants who can vote with first on their first papers with what's called alien suffrage. And so they just see it as untenable. And for a lot of this period, especially after um, initial failures that they felt were just, you know, sort of inexcusable, they, in many ways, these national leaders turn their backs. And so for me, whereas in other states, especially Western states, the WCTU could be quite helpful at creating networks of activism for women suffragists um, to sort of work alongside them. In these states in the Midwest and really across the Midwest, that didn't work. Um, those networks of activism were not necessarily enhancing, but in fact, um, enhancing in a way of like bringing more people to the to the ballot or to the cause of women's suffrage, but it was in fact limiting the way people understood why they should support women's suffrage or not. You described the frustration that national leaders felt, and I was thinking about uh, the campaigns you describe in your book uh, in, in the States, and I was thinking, which must they have found more frustrating? The early ones in which they came up, you know, short of the vote by a lot in, in, in the elections or the ones you described that are later on where they are so achingly close to achieving success. And yet they, it's, it's, it's like, you know, the, you know, it's like uh, Charlie Brown and the football. It's like every time they seem to run into these campaigns, it's like, we're actually going to get there. And then it, it, they just fall short and it, it's, it, and they're right back where they started. I know it's like 5,000 votes and they're just shaking their hands. You just, you read their letters and there you can just, you feel the emotion. Um, one of my favorite lines is after the 1916 campaign in Iowa 
and the president of the Iowa Equal Suffrage Association, a woman named Flora Dunlap, she just says these results were very bitter. (laughs) (laughs) You just feel it. Um, She just spends a lot of these letters. She's writing to Carrie Chapman Catt at that point and just saying, like, we worked so hard for so long. We thought we had it. And we didn't. Um, And in that case, they lost by about 10,000 votes. And then there's these accusations of irregularities in the election returns. Um, Sounds very similar to some current conversations (laughs) we've had uh, or having. But yeah, so in some ways, I actually, it's so interesting to um, compare the earlier campaigns. There's state campaigns uh, in South Dakota in 1890. Uh, there's a brief one in 1894 that doesn't get much play, but then the next big one is in 1898. And I think those, the frustration was um, that they felt that no matter what they did, they weren't going to win. And they got very uh, sort of downhearted very quickly. Um, and then, especially in the 1890 campaign, I think Susan B. Anthony and Anna Howard Shaw and Carrie Chapman Catt, in some ways they still kept fighting, but they had sort of lost that spirit where they just sort of knew it's not going to work. These people, we keep talking to them and they just aren't going to support this because for a variety of reasons, right? They're, they're immigrants. They're, they don't speak English. A lot of them had just been arriving into the United States. Um, they have interests uh, that would be against women's suffrage in that they are anti-prohibition. And so those, I think, they just sort of, they tried, but they they recognized that it was really going to be futile. In the latter campaigns, the 19th, in South Dakota, there's campaigns in 1910, 1914, 1916, and then in 1918, which is, that one's a little bit different uh, because it took place during World War I. Um, but then the one, and then also the one in 1916 in Iowa, those become increasingly closer. And I think for them, they keep thinking like, is it going to be this one? Okay, no. Is it going to be the next one? No. And they just keep thinking it's going to happen, but it's a, it's a matter of when, how many more years do we have to wait? Um, so yeah, I don't know which one would be more frustrating. Um, but there, in many ways, the, the ideas, the, the, the frustrations are similar from, the earlier campaigns to the to the latter campaigns, um, but I think it's um, in many ways their their approach is is the sort of telling um, feature that gets at sort of how they understand their prospects. I was thinking uh, also though about how it wasn't just a matter of winning the votes; it was how sometimes the the goalposts would be moved. You described how uh, in Minnesota, for example, how uh, early on the process, the state legislature decides to change how uh, the, the, the criteria for an amendment being introduced into the Constitution uh, from being a majority of the people support, uh, you know, who vote on the proposition to uh, approve it to it has to be a majority of all the voters in the election and how they instantly it goes from being something that is at best a long shot to something that is, oh, my goodness, it's just simply not going to happen. And, and, and just the sense of, as to how, you know, they're, they're climbing uphill and, and yet they're sliding back down fa- faster than they can climb. Exactly. Yeah, that Minnesota case is it. What it does is, um, and what I it gets at is what I was saying earlier um, with that conversation with Dorothy Schweder about how what I wanted to try to do was look at um, people experience women's suffrage so much differently to, based on these political cultures and expectations. And so in Minnesota. Um, there is no campaign amendment campaign um, because of this crazy, not so crazy, but crazy. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't think it was crazy. Um, Amendment rule where, yeah, if you basically what it means is if you vote no, or if you, if you don't vote, it's a no vote because you have to get the majority of all the votes cast in an election. Well, it, 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 this, the leaders, once this is passed in 1898, the leaders of the mid, the Minnesota women's suffrage association, as well as NASA, they just sort of say, well, it's not going to happen for Minnesota, not in the way that we've been thinking that it would with, with these kind of a state amendment campaign. Um, it, it's got to go through the legislature at this point, which they knew the Minnesota legislature was highly unfavorable to women's suffrage. And really what you see in Minnesota is stagnation. Um, it really wasn't a vibrant move it, movement in comparison to what it was in South Dakota and in Iowa as it was in Minnesota. Um, but that really kind of, it's the nail in the coffin, right? They just can't, they just say, this isn't going to work. And so as a result, 
women living in Minnesota, you know, a miles away, again, these sort of three counties are not that far from each other. But in Minnesota, their experience with women's suffrage was profoundly and markedly different than it was in South Dakota and Iowa. They just didn't have the kind of engagement or interaction with the ideas of women's suffrage, the questions about women's suffrage, as they did just across the border in Iowa or in South Dakota. And it's because of this 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 really fascinating change to the Minnesota Constitution and amending it. You, uh, in your coverage of the suffrage campaigns, you uh, d- you break them into separate chapters, and you use 1900s the dividing point, and that of course brings up the question of how progressivism changes the nature of these campaigns. I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, explain a bit the evolution of the context in these campaigns and how that evolution helped to go from these initial two to one defeats on suffrage uh, amendments, uh, 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 ballot measures to where it started becoming much more narrow and, 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 and victory seemed to be so much closer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. I did that on certainly on purpose. There's a great sort of periodization argument that we can talk about within how this um, plays out. I will say the the latest research on women's suffrage does a really nice job of talking about continuities. That there's this argument that there's this period from ni- about 1900 to 1910 of the doldrums, um, and I think that the more current day scholars are correct in that that's not. That's not accurate, um, that there is continuity, but you're right that progressivism changes the context. And in particular in the Midwest, it changes the way people start to um, reevaluate their gen- the gender norms and gendered expectations for women. And it also changes the ways in which women can even more engage um, in the kind of public sphere and this civic um, responsibility that they start to talk about more and more. It starts to change that calculus. And so they really start to see themselves um, within this progressive movement as closer to the state, um, which is something that uh, lots of people have talked about. They also start to see, though, that the state um, can, in fact, act on those things that they've had these longstanding interests in. So um, education and literacy and sanitation and uh, public health. These are all things that these Midwestern Yankee, Yankee activists had been engaging with and promoting in their local communities since the late 19th century. But all of a sudden, what pro or what what progressivism gives them is kind of new language and new set of expectations for how they can even more publicly engage and with more authority engage with um, the state. And so. In the Midwest, we see lots of um, new expectations in the state legislature. We have um, progressive governors in Iowa, South Dakota, and Minnesota that are um, elected um, at various times, but that start to pass bills that will, um, in fact, enshrine measures that Yankee activists had been advocating for before, but, you know, earlier through Federated Women's Clubs or the WCTU um, or what have you. So in many ways, they see that also as sort of vindication that the things that they have been doing for much longer than um, progressivism as a movement had been around are finally getting traction in the state and at the federal level, these state governments. They And they think, well, this, yeah, this proves that we should have the right to vote, that this proves that our political engagement uh, is valid and influential and matters. And they see the tangible results. You know, they see that um, their children are healthier they, and their their streets are cleaner and they have public parks. And so they're doing all these things with kind of a renewed vigor and energy. I do think it's important to say, like, it's not that progressivism makes them suffragists or makes them activists. They already were beforehand, but it just enlivens it it magnifies what they'd already been doing and yet it they aren't quite over the finish line and that brings us to the first world war and that that sort of that that catalyzation that takes place with the uh ultimately with the 19th amendment and this is where i I thought it was very uh 
it, we, we kind of, it brings us back to that early part of your book where you're talking about this notion, notion of citizenship. How does the war change the circumstance in those states to where they're finally seeing movement? Because as you described, you go from, uh, the the, the, the the suffragists uh, coming up short in campaign after campaign in the late 19th, early 20th century to where in these three states, they're among the first to ratify the 19th Amendment when it comes before them. I know. Yeah. When I talk about this with people, they're just sort of like, what? <laughs> how, does, <laughs> how do you change in a matter of 18 months? And in part, I mean, there's many reasons, but it's World War One that totally reconfigures how people are thinking about citizenship and the expectations of citizenship. Um, they're thinking about immigrants and in particular German immigrants in the Midwest. So um, it starts as early as 1914, even though the United States has not been involved, you know, it's not a, it's not a participant, um, in world war one, there's lots of, um, conversations, agitation around this question. And one of the things that's really important for the Midwest to remember is that they have this huge immigrant population, but also by this point, by 1914, Germans are the largest immigrant group. And many of these Germans are very eager to support Germany and they make their case early on. And this really starts for the native born, the Yankees in the Midwest. It really starts to turn what was sort of this tension that they had been willing to live with into more um, focused and overt nativism, anti-immigrant sentiment. And so that starts to then reconfigure how they're thinking about this idea of citizenship, um, where you had alien suffrage, you had immigrants who could vote, um, but not necessarily be citizens or complete the naturalization process. You had these, what they thought were these wonderfully civically engaged native born women, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, who fit this particular mold, um, who don't have the right to vote. And they start to get this sense that, they need to really develop and articulate clearly what they mean by citizen and citizen engagement. And so they they start to do that over the course of 1914, 1915. And then by the, the time World War One, by the time the United States joins it, you have this massive shift um, toward support for um, women's suffrage. What we see in particular is those campaigns in 1916 in Iowa and South Dakota, they're quite close but you already start to see the sort of nativism seeping into the analysis of the reasons why these campaigns failed. Um, earlier campaigns failed because of a variety of reasons. So it would be temperance or it would be um, that there wasn't enough a ground game. Um, there wasn't enough um, work that what suffragists had done. By 1916, that starts to change. It's not that the suffragists necessarily came up short. And that's part of it. But they start to say there are these nefarious elements at play, these really Germans, these ignorant voters who are sort of um, voting against women's suffrage because they don't want democracy to flourish and continue to, to, to work. And so these sort of it's almost like conspiracy theory but they and they're and it's sort of subtle but you see it in the suffrage propaganda you see it in their letters that they're starting to take these long decades long arguments and and put them into this new context about citizenship um, and really what it does by the time world war one unfolds it becomes civic responsibility patriotism that you understand um, that you are a responsible citizen, you have the obligations of citizenship, and that therefore means that you're patriotic. And in that context, if it's about loyalty and patriotism, women suffragists are on the right side, and these German immigrants are on the wrong side. And that's really where we start to see that movement, that, that profound and pretty quick shift towards support for women's suffrage, because the suffragists will then use that argument to say, you need to give women the right to vote, to protect democracy, to uphold this idea of who is most fit to be a citizen and engage by voting. Um, and you need to really get rid of this alien suffrage in these states. And so it's just this fascinating, all these sort of longstanding tensions really come to a head so quickly, 1917, 1918. And then in the case of South Dakota, women get the right to vote <laughs> two years before the amendment is ratified. So the federal amendment. So it's just incredible how quickly that happens. And then, as you said, the first states to ratify the 19th Amendment 
more than half, about around half or just over half, are from the Midwest, a, a region that the, that the national leaders had written off um, a couple decades before. I was thinking as soon as B. Anthony hadn't, uh, had lived to that point, she might have passed away from shock. I don't think she ever would have anticipated um, that the the profound support that these Midwesterners that she had again she in her letters and in her she just despised at after the campaigns that she had uh, endured she just despised it in in many ways. (laughs) Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Sure. So, one of the things that has intrigued me in doing this project is this question about naturalization of immigrants and the assumptions that we have um, that we need to investigate further. And and these assumptions about um, immigrants and the naturalization process, in particular in the 19th century and early 20th century, um, one of the things that um, suffragists will argue, and many people will argue, Anna Howard Shaw, in in fact, articulates this in a speech that she gives in South Dakota in 1914. She says, all these immigrants are coming to the United States. They are taking out their first papers, which are the Declaration of of Intention, which is after two years, but they're not finishing the naturalization process. So in these states that have alien suffrage, they can vote and never be citizens. And for me, that just I find that so interesting. Is that actually true? And so my question has turned into a second project is to actually investigate the naturalization process and the enforcement of it and to really look at the meanings associated um, with the process of naturalization um, and really underlying that assimilation, um, because that's really one of the arguments these suffragists are making. So for me, it's this question of if you go through the naturalization process, you get your citizenship status. What does that mean? Um, how do people understand that at this time, late 19th and early 20th century? And what does that tell us about the assumptions we have about people coming to the United States and trying to join it? What, what are our expectations? They're not clear. (laughs) That's, that's for sure. I'm sorry. Are you you looking at it uh, again in terms of the Midwest region or are you looking uh, more broadly? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to keep it in the Midwest. I think there's so many just vibrant questions here uh, that just keep captivating my attention and keep coming back to it, especially because of the particular um, way in which it was settled and and how it was settled, the, the particular patterns and expectations that emerged. So, but I do think it'll be broad. Um, I, I will be thinking about naturalization, certainly as it shifted from um, being something that was more of a state and even local matter to something uh, in particular after 1906 that was um, a federal matter. Um, and I, I just think there's so many assumptions that we have about what we expect for um, people who go through this naturalization process at this time that, and, and in particular, knowing that in local communities, there was so much um, opportunity to not necessarily maintain or, 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 um, or there was, there was a lot of opportunity to maintain their ethnic identities in the Midwest. I'm just very curious to think, think through that with more, um, more time and more emphasis on that, that particular question. Well, it sounds like an excellent project. Best of luck with it. Thank you. Sarah Eggy, thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks a lot.